the question of structure is is um, is very complicated. The moment we compare Shakespearean drama with other kinds of drama and ask ourselves how it's different, um, one of the things that is extremely interesting in Shakespeare's structure, not only in Shakespeare, of course, is is the ways in which he compartmentalizes action so that you have a set of characters on stage in one scene. They are all gone for the next scene. You have an entirely different set of characters. Now, that sounds like such an extraordinarily obvious, self-evident thing to talk about. And yet, if you compare it, let's say, with, with French classical drama, um, the understanding there of a scene is that a new person comes onto the stage and then they number a new scene. And when somebody leaves and another person comes on the stage, you have another scene. In other words, there is a continuity still with those who remain on the stage. And one of the differences in the temper and register of French classical drama um, is, is that it feels because of that fluent continuity of presence on stage, it feels calmer. And when the, when the dramatists, of course, reflect that in their language and aim at a classical, shall we say, composure of language, um, then you have an entirely different texture of dramatic impact that comes out of that. Um, I think that there's a very illuminating um, moment. It's the 18th century. It's the point at which... England is still having problems with Shakespeare. England is still putting King Lear on stage with a happy ending. She lives, uh, and so on. England has tremendous problems with, with Shakespeare. The French also have tremendous problems with Shakespeare. Voltaire reads Hamlet, and he's scandalized. He says, this is barbaric, it's a mess, it's the outpourings of a madman. The Germans don't, oddly enough. In the 1770s, they suddenly discover in Shakespeare partly for the wrong reasons, someone they think is the genius of them all. Um, they, they, I mean, in fact, Tolstoy famously said that Shakespeare was a German invention um, because in the 18th century, when the whole of Europe was rather indifferent to Shakespeare, including England, along come the Germans and say, this is the way it should be. This is the character of an action. This is how things happen, and, and it reflects the full range of human experience. It doesn't sanitize it and put it in a box. I think the reason that the Voltaires of this world were, and for that matter the Sam Johnsons, were in some ways, for all of, their, um, for all of Johnson's recognition of Shakespeare's genius, but there were aspects that they couldn't swallow. Um, I think that the problem is that in their minds there is something which they think of as classical and they think of as the highest achievement of theatrical art, and that is to achieve... Um, a composure and a thoroughly composed, in both senses, um, vein and, and texture to the play, and to allow that to move towards a resolution in serenity, if I can put it like that. This isn't what most of Shakespeare's about. Of course, there's a good argument to say that he moves in that direction in the late plays. Um, but most of Shakespeare isn't about that. And the fact that it's not about resolving in serenity um, is worked out 
at different levels. It's worked out in the language. It's worked out in the tempo of action. His action is always faster than anything in Racine or Corneille. Um, and it's worked out in what I think I said earlier about the texture of scene and act. The ways in which scenes are constructed in Shakespeare is very different from the way in which scenes are constructed in French classical drama. Um, there is none of that fluid, almost calm continuity which the French aspire to. By contrast, you have, as it were, as I'll, I'll put it crudely, a, a series of explosions on stage. This bunch of characters bursts onto the stage, does this and this and this, have fun or kill each other, and then in the next scene, there's an entirely different bunch there. And the audience, rather as in pantomime, if you like, have to remember what's going on in that other strand of action for the moment in 15 minutes when the same bunch of characters reappear and take that action further. So it's a rather different understanding. It looks compartmentalised. The more you reflect upon it, though, the more it proves to be immensely versatile, because that understanding of how to present an action can serve almost any purpose you want. Um, it can serve alternation between high and low life. I mean, here is the king, here is the, the boar at East Cheap, whatever. Now, here are the plebs. It can serve gear changes between reflective, quiet, tranquil scenes and hectic, violent, mobile scenes. Um, it has so many different functions. It, in a way, anticipates the era of the, of the sound bite, as it were. That's, I suppose, one of the reasons why Shakespeare has proved so adaptable to different periods, is, is that he seems to make it possible to pour anything into him. We don't feel the same way when we look back at, um, well, I'll, I'll be provocative, I think, and say even even Euripides or whatever. And I don't mean that the Greek classical drama has died from the stage. Of course it hasn't, and I don't want to be understood to be saying that. And yet, and yet, there is a sense in which Shakespeare has been everybody's playwright, um, which isn't the case for, for Greek classical drama. And I think that there is a very simple correlation um, there between what appears to be the accessibility of his scenic construction. Um, quite why we respond in that way, I don't know, because there is nothing intrinsically false to life in presenting scenes in the way that French drama does. And yet, that seems to be the way that we experience it once we're in the theatre. I think by the time we got to the 1770s, uh, the movement that was known as Sturm und Drang, Storm and Stress in, in Germany. Um, this was, as it were, the first big precursor of Romanticism and the emphasis on the individual that was going to sweep Europe. Um, it was part of that new movement of, of feeling, not only intellectual, but at every gut level as well, that, that issued in the French Revolution as well. So it's... Um, and what you see in in the German handling of Shakespeare at that point, I think this is their misunderstanding, is a sense that Shakespeare is in some sense primitive. He is for them what Italian 
inverted commas, primitive art was for painters in the 19th century who wanted to go back to the pre-Raphaelite age. Uh, they go back, and it's, it's that sense of primitive. Someone who is, as it were, the original. Someone who can give you the, the, raw, um, the raw stuff. Um, I think, in a sense, that's wrong, isn't it? Because clearly Shakespeare is, is not raw in the sense that they sometimes understood it. I mean, um, it's the same quality of mistake that they make there as, as Voltaire makes when he says that Shakespeare is barbarian. Um, clearly Shakespeare is is uh, complex in structure and, and thought. Um, but it's very interesting, nevertheless, that that is one of the things that they value in him because it suggests that in spite of his elaborate Renaissance constructions and manner, Shakespeare also, at the same time, is powerful in a very um, authentic and direct way. That combination, I think, is something which one which one isn't finding in in drama, which is self-regardingly classical, um, and it's it's I think the reason why why his appeal has survived so many shifts in taste, um, be, be, because he's a, enable, he's able to do both of those things. I think that um, I think there are real continuities between Shakespeare's time and ours. Um, one of one of the curious aspects of Shakespeare's composition is always this sense that he very clearly has of of needing to please two qualities of audience at the same time. There are those who will savour the finely turned phrase and will listen to all the subtleties of, of his poetry. And there are others, the groundlings, who are going to be cheering when someone gets run through with a rapier. Um, and he's very busy pleasing both kinds of audience. I think in that respect, we can identify very easily because um, a lot of television drama, I mean, from, let's say, Pennies from Heaven, for example, is or The Singing Detective, take some Potter classics, um, a lot of television drama works in exactly that sort of way, of offering striking stuff to please and titillate on the one level, and on the other hand, um, going very carefully and self-consciously and self-referentially to that background of the mind where something lodges and sits afterwards. And, and in the age of video, of course, you go back and you can look at it again and again if you, if you insist. Um, but in other words, those who were in the galleries in Shakespeare's day and who were reflecting on, oh, wasn't that a nice inverted foot in that line, um, they are the same types of intellectual responders who are going back over particular nuances um, in television drama. I think that probably the area of contemporary drama that is most closely like Shakespeare is, is crime drama, um, The Sopranos or um, whatever. And one of the funny things about the CSI programs is, is that they move consistently towards a French end of the spectrum. Um, their pace is quite extraordinarily slow for most of the duration of a typical 50-minute slot. Um, for, for contemporary tastes. And, and they also have quite often that, that French sense of scene, which is to keep the, uh, keep the camera running and somebody else has walked into shot and so on. It's, it's a very French scent. It's, 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 it's not Shakespearean. I would like the students to understand the very real difficulty of plotting climax for the stage. 
One of the phenomenal hallmarks of Elizabethan drama generally is its ability to generate a succession of climaxes. Um, if I take one example at random, Macbeth, um, you have the murder of Duncan and the ensuing prolonged discovery of the body process. And that is a phenomenal climactic block of action. You have the death of the murder of Banquo and the, uh, the banquet scene at which his ghost appears, another phenomenal block of action. In a way, both of those twin peaks of, of climactic action um, almost eclipse the ending of the play in, in one's experience of it in the theatre. Shakespeare has plenty of other little climaxes strewn in there as well, such as the raid on Macduff's castle and so on. So it's uh, all the visits to the, to the witches. You think in, in a short compass, what an extraordinary heap of stuff that is to fit in. Yeah? Extraordinary. And the moment you go to work on the plotting of a story and how it fits into a shape of scenes and acts, you realize how very, very, very difficult and challenging that is. Now, that is a very steep learning curve. And, and I found that students quite possibly, f I'm not sure, um, but I think they found that in a, in a way the most difficult thing um, to handle, uh, the, the generation of, of that sort of rhythm, the rhythm of climax, and the, the, the way that it comes out of the plot, and the way that the plot sits in the pattern of act and scene. Um, that is extremely difficult. Um, nowadays, we're accustomed to a, shall we say, a much more parlando, I'll use that word, I think, um, kind of theatre, which is to say a theatre which steadily talks its way towards a sense of climax. If you think, let's say, of Ariel Dorfman's Death and the Maiden, um, you know from the constellation of characters, the, the former victim and her old torturer, you know that there is implicit in this action throughout, from the very beginning, um, a climax of some form. The play isn't about um, locating climaxes in different points throughout the action. It's teasing you, as it were, with a sense of climax all the way through. That is much more our modern understanding. Um, it's something which, let's say, we can trace at least as far back as Ibsen. Um, the doll's house, when the door slams, that is our modern understanding of climax. Something has happened which has grown out of the psychological relations between people, and it is a turning point. That is our contemporary understanding. It is so utterly different, utterly, utterly different from the Elizabethan picture of climax. And I think that to think one's way back into that understanding was a tremendous challenge um, for, for the students. And, and I, I suppose it has enriched them in two ways. It has enriched their... If, if I'm to think of learning outcomes, it's, it's enriched their sense of what is distinctive about the Elizabethan understanding of stage action. And it's presumably also, by implication at least, enriched their understanding of where we've got to now in our modern sense of a stage action. <laughs>